0: Well, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Genesis. We began a few weeks ago a study in these first three chapters of Genesis. It's going to take us right up till Christmas. And today we've worked our way up to chapter 2. And we'll be in the first three verses here of Genesis chapter 2. Some of you are old enough to remember with me all the way back to 1981. Some of you, you've read about it in history books. That's okay. But back in 1981, there was a movie that won four Academy Awards. It was called Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire portrays the true life story of a man named Eric Liddell. He was a British athlete who was in the 1924 Olympics. He was nicknamed the Flying Scotsman and pretty much everybody believed him to be a shoe-in to win the gold for Britain running the 100-meter race. But he made headlines worldwide when the Olympics began and he was there and realized that this race that everybody thought would so easily win It was going to be run on Sunday. And it ran against his beliefs to run on the Sabbath. And so he decided to stick to his convictions despite intense pressure from the British Olympic Committee and from the Crown Prince of England himself. And he did not run the race. And Britain lost out on a medal. It was a few days later, he was given the opportunity to run in the 400 meter race, a distance, a race that he had never trained for, and yet he won the gold. Eric Liddell's story is one that illustrates a controversy that has been going on among Christians for a long time. And though it's not a, a very big debate necessarily among many folks today in Christian circles, it's not because the answers and the the answer is easy, or because there aren't some who would disagree very vehemently. You see, the question is are we to keep a Sabbath or not? And if so, when should we do that? Seventh day Baptist, Seventh day Adventists, the worldwide Church of God, its, it's remnants that are around, which are, are quite a few, the recent Hebrew roots movement, and others under the name, under, under the umbrella or the name of Christianity, would, would say that we are supposed to, as Christians, we are supposed to worship on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. We are to keep the Sabbath. They're in the minority, but some would say that. Many Christian traditions who were until not that long ago really the majority, such as those under the Westminster Confession, they traditionally taught that we are to keep the Sabbath, but among Christians it is now the Christian Sabbath. We worship on Sunday and we are to keep the Sunday like the Jewish Sabbath. And we we do that on Sunday because the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day of the week changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Today, many, and I would actually say most evangelicals, look at the Sabbath and they say the Sabbath was part of the law given to Israel. And we are not under the law, but we are under grace, and therefore, The Sabbath really is not applicable at all to us as believers. And I bring up that controversy today because the passage before us here in Genesis chapter 2 is where the roots of the Old Testament law of Sabbath are found. And it would really be almost impossible to cover these verses thoroughly without at least touching on their implications regarding the issue of the Sabbath. And so we will go there later this morning, but we're going to start here in the text and look at exactly what the text has to teach us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So I I hope you have your Bibles out now so you can follow along it always does us good to see it and and read it for ourselves. Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Did you notice as I read and as you followed along that there's a lot of repetition in that? You know... God doesn't waste ink. Whenever we find something repeated a lot, we should say, you know, there's probably something there I should pay attention to. So even if you're of the opinion that the Sabbath really shouldn't have any bearing on us today, probably it's worth paying attention to this passage and seeing what's here for us. Because God repeats Himself a lot here. We've been looking in chapter 1 at the days of creation. As God begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and and we move right away into the days of creation. And we've gone through days 1 through 6, and this is day 7 here. Actually, you do know the chapter breaks in our Bible aren't part of the original text. They were added by translators and why they broke Where they did here, so the day seven is in chapter two. It really goes with what has come before. And after this, there's a break. and, And as we'll see next week, we see something different. And so there should be a break there, if anywhere. But anyway... If we look and compare this day with the days that have come before, what you will notice is the account of this seventh day doesn't follow the pattern that we noted in the last few weeks that we noted in the other six days of creation. For one thing, if you look back and look at every one of the six days prior to this, everyone begins with these words, and God said, but not this day. You will also notice that Each day in the six days prior, each day's number is mentioned one time, but here in in this seventh day, it's three times we read the seventh day, the seventh day, the seventh day. I get the opinion that this seventh day has some special significance. Well, to help us unpack these verses and help... Help give some structure as we kind of walk through. We'll notice that there are really three primary verbs here in this text, and they give us—they'll help us step through it and help help tell the story of the seventh day. Going back to verse one, it says, "Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them." The first verb there is the verb "had finished." So the first thing to notice in this is that God had finished. He had completed His creative work. He's completed the heavens and the earth and everything that has filled them. Just a little side note, one of the great frustrations I have in my life is the great number of things that are not finished. Matter of fact, it's, it's a very small number of things that I can say are finished. So I'm in awe when I look and I see that God in six days finished the heavens and the earth, the universe, and everything that fills them. Awesome. Just as it it brings me awe when I read Christ's words on the cross. We studied that earlier this spring when He said, It is finished. When He was praying the night before to the Father and He said, I have finished the work You've given Me to do. I'm in awe of that. What I think I realize is that I'm probably working on the wrong things, which is why I don't finish them, and I'm not, probably not busy enough on the ones that I should be doing, but that's all on the side. It's not an insignificant point that the text says that, and that God says, it was finished, complete. As we look around, the point is, is that there's no creation taking place now. God has created, and the universe is functioning in accordance with the laws that He set in place. And those very words, that it's complete, it's finished, they, they, they mirror and they confirm what we just naturally observe in nature. No new life forms are emerging. Life is not spontaneously sprouting up. God is not creating new things. There is no evolution in process. We don't just watch a, you know, a flower become a bird or a bird become a dog or anything like that. There is no new creation going on. There is procreation. God built into every living thing the ability to procreate, but within, as the scripture says, within its kind. That's a significant point. Also what we notice is, that, as I said, the physical laws that God created are, are working and governing in the universe. Physical laws such as thermodynamics, which notes that matters, uh, particularly energy, cannot be created nor destroyed. and But along with that, that everything is continuously winding down. By the way, if everything is winding down, moving from a state of more available energy to a state of less available energy, what it implies is that there was at some point a winding up, which requires a Creator I move on, and that everything moves as as the law goes on, and that everything moves from a state of higher order to a state of less order and less acted upon by intelligence or an outside force. That's going on in the universe today, and it, it, all around us, and that's exactly inconsistent, it is exactly consistent with what the scripture says, the biblical creation account, but it is the exact opposite of what an evolutionary worldview requires. It's significant that it says here that thus the heavens and earth were finished. And three times in this, these three verses, it says, was finished. He had finished. And it talks about all the work that He had done in the past tense. It's all done. Second verb here in, this, in these verses that we want to note, we see where it says, it goes on and it says, and on the seventh day, verse 2, God finished His work that He had done and He rested on the seventh day. God rested. What does that mean? God rested. Does it mean He was tired? The answer to that is no. When you and I work hard, we get tired. I've been out working last week. I spent a couple of days out working on my deck. And I got tired. When we get tired, we, we need food to replenish all those expended, all that energy we've expended. We need drink to, re- to replenish all the fluids that we've lost. You know, a good shot of Gatorade so you get all the, the electrolytes and stuff. And we need, we need rest. We need to go lay down. We need rest because our arms hurt, our legs hurt, our back hurt. Or we've worked all our muscles and we're, we need some sleep. But God doesn't need that. When God created, there was no depletion of His energy. There was was no loss nor deficit of His power. Because as we noted already in the text, that all through the text God is called in English, God. But the Hebrew name for God here is Elohim, God Almighty, the Almighty God. He is the all-powerful God. His strength never wanes. It never diminishes. He doesn't have any need for refreshment or replenishing because He never gets weary. So Isaiah says this, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord, the everlasting God, the Creator of the earth, He will not grow weary or tired and His understanding no one can fathom. Because he never gets weary or tired, he never sleeps. As the psalmist says, indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So if it's not saying that, what is this saying? Well, simply this. When it says rest, the Hebrew word rest, Shabbat, means simply to cease or to not do work. When it says God rested, what it means is He ceased working. He stopped His creative work. The reason being, go back to the one before. Everything was already done. There was nothing left to create. Everything that needed creating has been created. And so He rested. He ceased. He stopped. The third verb here on this seventh day is verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day. And made it holy. God blessed the seventh day. In fact, as it says, he, he sanctifies it. He makes it holy. When we make something holy, it means that we set it apart, that we, as it were, we elevate it, exalt it above what everything else or, or other normal things. It is special. And so when God blesses this day, He pronounces a blessing on it and He elevates it. He says this day is is exalted above the other days. We wonder why is that? Is it exalted because it's finished? The work is finished? Is it exalted because He took a day off? Why? Exodus 37, verse 17 gives us a clue where it says this, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, And on the seventh day he rested. This is all things we've heard. It adds a couple of words and was refreshed. Now, just read that and and was refreshed seems to seems to uh, give credence to the fact that God was tired and he needed, you know, he just finished football practice and needs a good douse of cold water and a good drink. No, that's not it. The Hebrew word here. And I I can't say it better than John MacArthur. Let me read you what he wrote. Explains it, I think, so well. The idea of that Hebrew word refreshed is the idea of satisfaction or delight. It's really the response of God to what is stated when back in chapter 1, the last verse on the end of the sixth day, where He saw everything He made and it was very good. And as a result of that, He was satisfied. He found joy. He found delight. He found a certain fulfillment and satisfaction of accomplishment. In other words, God delights in His creation. He He ceased work and He blessed His creation as He took delight in His creation. You understand this if you're like me. Whenever I take on a task and, and it's perhaps kind of challenging, something that I'm going to build, something I'm going to make, maybe it's something I'm, I'm painting or something I'm assembling, and, and I'm sure you've done this. You, you, you labor, you strive over it, you do it, you finish it, and what you do, you stand back and go... Or if you're like me, I do that like every step along the way. You work ten minutes, stand back go, Ooh, that's nice. <laughs> that's why it takes me so long to get everything done. At the end of the six days, it's finished. God ceases work and He steps back. And He blesses it because, as we saw at the end of chapter 1, it was very good. And God is refreshed in it. He delights in it. Concept, that concept is confirmed over in Psalm 104. If you take the time, some time to go and read Psalm 104, the first 30 verses of the psalm are a, um, a marvelous and a beautiful poem about the marvel of God's handiwork as He as He forms and shapes and creates the world. And then verse 31 says this: The Lord takes pleasure in all that He has made. I don't know if you ever thought about how God takes pleasure in His creation. I realized that in some new ways a few years ago as I was reading and I thought, you know, there are stars, there are galaxies no one has ever seen, no human has ever seen, but God takes delight in them. He made them. He's made creatures that swim in the depths of the sea that none of us will ever see. But God just takes delight. And I think He takes delight every time they find a new one. And we all get excited. Look what we discovered! And God says, yeah, I know, I made that. I've known that was there for 6,000 years you know, or so. Just waiting for you to find it. <laughs> God delights in His creation. I believe day 7, in other words, is blessed. Because God delights in His finished creation, particularly in the crown of His creation. The highlight, which was the creation of mankind, Adam and Eve. And God delights in fellowship with them and as they delight in Him. We see over in Genesis chapter 3 before sin comes into the world that God comes down in the cool of the day to walk with man. And it seems as, as was the habit, was common God and man to fellowship. There's another difference here in the text between this seventh day and the six days that came before. And it's that all of the other six days prior to this ended with the same phrase. If you notice, if you look carefully, it's, and there was evening, and there was morning, and then the number of the day. Day one, day two, day three. This... This day doesn't end that way. It's omitted. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that's on purpose with a point. It's to communicate that this day is different. And it's not just another day in the sequence of events of the creation of the world for everything has already been done. Everything's been created. Rather, this seventh day is to be the ongoing state. It's the way that things should be from then on. The seventh day was going to end like the other days, a 24-hour day, but not as a state of life. The refreshment and the delight and the joy that God had in His creation and that His creation had in Him was what was to continue every day from now on. And it did continue until chapter 3 when sin comes into the world. We don't know how long that was. Weeks, months, years, decades. Who knows? But that was the seventh day. And God says, I think He's highlighting the seventh day because the highlight of the creation week wasn't the things being created. The highlight of the seventh week was the fellowship and the delight of the Creator in His creation and the creation in the Creator. that's the seventh day. And now I bring us back to really the question that arises, what does that have to do with us today? And are we supposed to observe a Sabbath day? Every seventh day, are we supposed to observe that day? Well, you are going to have to take a whirlwind tour through Scripture to, to answer the question, but before we leave... Genesis chapter 2 here and these three verses, I want us to, to notice, take, make a couple of observations about these verses. Because most of the folks who would say, yes, we need to observe, we are required, we are obligated, we're under commandment to observe the seventh day, the Sabbath. They would come right to these verses and say the reason is because it's a timeless principle from the beginning and it is what we are supposed, it's ongoing for all of God's people for all time. The rule starts here. So notice with me just a couple of things about these three verses. Did you notice in these three verses who's resting? Who is it that observes God? There's no mention of man resting here. Matter of fact, there's not even mention of man at all in these three verses. God is the subject. So just I think that's one thing to notice. The second thing to notice here is notice that there is no command, there is no rule regarding the Sabbath. It's just that God... Finished the work on days one through six. He ceased working on day seven. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So there's no mention of man resting. There is no command or rule regarding the Sabbath. And yet, yet God blesses this day and sets it apart. So He seems to imply that there's something significant about the seventh day. And by the way, as we do a quick whirlwind tour through Scripture, what you're going to notice is I'm not going to just land on one side of this equation as we look in Scripture because if it were that easy, a lot of Christians wouldn't be questioning what are we supposed to do here. We see in one hand perhaps a timeless principle, but on the other hand no no command and no mention of men here. The first mention of Sabbath in the Scripture shows up not that many pages away from this, It shows up in the book of Exodus chapter 16. And you'll probably remember what happens there. Exodus 16, God's people, the Israelites, have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. That's where Genesis closes and Exodus opens up. They've been slaves 400 years. God raises up Moses to lead His people out of Egypt, take them back to the land. He promised to give their forefathers. And... You recall, he sends the plagues, and there's Passover, and the people leave Egypt. They come to the Red Sea, God parts the Red Sea, they go across, Pharaoh's army's wiped out, and then, about a month and a half after they leave Egypt, 15th day of the second month, they're starting to run out of food. And God miraculously provides manna. Food from heaven that shows up like dew on the ground every day. And for the rest of the years they're in the wilderness, this manna is going to come. Every day, by the way, except one. God tells them as the manna comes, He says, Now every day you go out, you collect what you need. Food from heaven, you collect it, you prepare it, eat it, eat it raw, whatever, I don't know. And um, He says, You do that every day. For six days, but on the sixth day, you go out and collect twice as much. By the way, any other day, if you try to collect more than you need, take all you want, but if you try to take more than you need and save up some for the next day, it will ruin. But on the sixth day, you can take twice as much and it won't ruin. And I'm telling you to do that because on the seventh day, there won't be any. The manna is a miracle every day, and it's a miracle on the seventh day when it doesn't show up. And it's a miracle on the sixth day when you get twice as much and it doesn't ruin. Every week there's all kinds of miracles going on. Here's the point though. God says, because the seventh day is a Sabbath. That's the first time it shows up. Now Sabbath is it's a form of the word rest back from Genesis 2, but it's a different word. It's the first time this word shows up. A few weeks later, they get over to, they, they get from there down to Mount Sinai. And you know, at Mount Sinai, they get the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. And in Je- Exodus chapter 20, we have the Ten Commandments. And most of you know that in the Ten Commandments, you get down to the Fourth Commandment. What's the Fourth Commandment? Remember the Sabbath day. There it comes up again. Now, the Sabbath day, for the first time, is given a, it's put into the law. It's official. They're to observe the Sabbath. And over just a few chapters later, Exodus chapter 31, God says this, It, the Sabbath, is a sign forever between Me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and on the seventh day He rested and refreshed. I read the the last part of that earlier. Now we get the whole verse. Something to notice here. First of all, God connects the Sabbath back to His pattern of the seven days, the seventh day of rest back in Genesis. And so it sounds like God does tie it back to Genesis and so maybe this is an enduring principle for all of God's people for all time except did you notice what else He said? He said that it is a covenant with Israel it's a it's a forever sign with his people Israel only so maybe it applies to us or maybe it doesn't you see why people get confused because if it's connected to genesis then and if it really started there then maybe it's for all of us because this is 2500 years later that the law is given except it's only made with Israel so we come to the new testament The New Testament, what we discover is in the New Testament is that the Old Testament law has been abolished. Romans chapter 6.14 says you are not under law, but under grace. What the Scripture tells us is that the Mosaic law, with all of its rules and commands, has been done away with. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the, the prophets said there's coming one day a new covenant. And Jesus, you recall, the night before His crucifixion in the upper room with His disciples in what we celebrate as communion was there and with the cup, you recall what He said, this is the new covenant in My blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of Me. He inaugurated, He instituted the new covenant. Our Bible has the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament is the new covenant. So Romans 7 says, but now we are released from the law. The Old Testament law has been done away with. Ephesians says it this way about Christ, that Christ abolished in His flesh the law with all its commandments and regulations. We don't have time to go into that further, but there you go. Furthermore, we go on and, and we, while we are not under the Old Covenant, the Mosaic law, What you discover, like with the Ten Commandments, is that the Ten Commandments are all found in the New Testament, the New Covenant, so we're under those, except there's one of them missing. Guess which one? There's no command, no restatement in the New Testament of the Old Testament command for the Sabbath. So, it appears from all that that we're off the hook. And then we look at the early church. And what we discover is the new, the, the early church very faithfully was meeting on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. We don't have time to go to these. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. It's interesting. The Apostle John, writing in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, down in verse 16, he says, For I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. The first day of the week, the day the church was meeting, began to be known as the Lord's Day. It wasn't just that they met on Sunday, they considered the Sunday the day that belonged to the Lord. And what we have from the New Testament and on through the early church and virtually through, universally through the church from then until our day is the majority of Christians gather together and worship on the Lord's Day. And, again, many believers have taken that Sunday is, for the Christian, the new Sabbath. So, there you have it. Both sides. (laughs) And we could do more. We're just scratching the surface. What are we to do? Well, let me attempt to tie it all together and make everybody mad. You want to do so by just going to Jesus. That's always safe. Actually, it's always dangerous to go to Jesus because He has a way of popping many of our bubbles. Jesus, you may recall, would often get in trouble with the Pharisees. Mark chapter 2 records one of those events. Actually, it was His disciples who caused a little stir. They came to Jesus. They said, Jesus, Your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. And we won't get into all the reasons why, and the, the Pharisees and keepers of the law, you recall, had added all kinds of things to God's command, about commands about the Sabbath, and they had added all their own little regulations, but that's kind of irrelevant to what Jesus says here. Two big statements Jesus makes here in Mark chapter two, verse 27. Jesus said to them, "The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath." So the Son of Man." is Lord even of the Sabbath. Two big things I want us to grab out of that verse, that statement of Jesus. First, He is Lord of the Sabbath. As Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnate Son of God, Jesus as Lord of Sabbath, by the way, if you ever remember the a mighty fortress it, is our God, and you have in that thing, Lord Sabaoth, his name comes from this. Lord Sabaoth, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. It's just free. If you ever sometimes you sing hymns, you don't know what they mean. Just, that's where that comes from. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Can do whatever he wants with the Sabbath. He's in charge. He can establish it. He can change it. He can change the rules, and he did. Jesus. Through His death on the cross, in His flesh, as the text said earlier, He abolished the law with all of its commands. Jesus has removed, He has the authority to do that, to remove the laws of the Sabbath. Because that's true, and all the other things we read about the, the, that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace, let me say this, I can, we can say it confidently from Scripture. Scripture. That whatever we are to do with the Sabbath, we are not to put ourselves or others back under the Old Testament rules and laws. We are not to become Sabbatarians who practice Sabbath as a legalistic requirement, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, that we fill with our version of mandates and requirements of what that should look like, and then we judge other people's spirituality based on how they measure up to our list. And the church has had a lot of habits and a lot of practice in doing that over the last couple of millennia. The Apostle Paul says to the Colossians, Colossians 2.16, this is an important one that uh, you can go back and look at just not jot it down says therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He's talking about things of the Old Testament law. Don't let anybody judge you you whether you do these things or not because as believers we don't have to do it is the point. We're not under the law. That was the point of the first council in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, where Gentiles were becoming believers. And the question among the Jewish believers was, do these folks have to become Jews now that they're believers in Christ? Do they have to follow the Old Testament law? And the results of that, go back and look, the results of that uh, council were, no! No! We don't take a law that we couldn't keep as Jews, that couldn't save us, and now that Christ has delivered us from that, go and try to put that back on people now. It's, no, we're missing the point. Say, So we're not to impose legal requirements on others, put others under the law or ourselves. The Lord of the Sabbath has rescued us from that. And that is where most of the evangelical church of our day stops. But we missed the rest of what Jesus said. And He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Man was not intended to become a slave to the Sabbath, but God gave the Sabbath to man as a benefit. While we are not under the law to serve the Sabbath, we are free to do so to observe the Sabbath and to reap the benefits of it because God gave the Sabbath to us as a gift. So you say, well, Pastor, then what does it look like to observe the Sabbath? Well, if I start telling you what it looks like, I start writing out for you the laws. But we go back to what it, where it started, go back to Genesis chapter 2. What does God do? He sets a day aside as, as holy. Why? Because He's finished creating and God stops creating and God starts enjoying the creation He has made, delighting in His creation and His crea- crea- creatures, <laughs> delighting in Him. What does God desire for us is for us to delight ourselves in Him. What is the purpose of the Sabbath? It is for us to take a break from the ordinary to enter into the extraordinary. It's opportunity for us to, if possible, if, if freedom and, and circumstances permit, to be able to take a physical break from labor, to take a day off. Not all believers today or at any time have been able to do that. Many are slaves or imprisoned or whatever else. But what a, what a benefit it is when people get a day off with family with, to be able to worship together. What a wonderful blessing. Many of us remember what it was like to have a culture where that was generally possible. I admire companies like Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A which say, you know, it's important enough for us to do that, that we, we close down to give that opportunity to families. But a Sabbath is more than a day off from work. And it's more than just having a day so we can go spend more time on the lake and more time on our boat and more time on the golf course and more time playing tennis and more time having fun, which is generally what we Americans like to do with any extra time we get. Right? The Sabbath is not that. The Sabbath was designed again, or what it calls us to do is to be, for one thing, a weekly reminder of the greatness of our God who spoke world into, and the universe into being. And He created everything that is in six days. On the seventh day, He ceased creating. The One who made us, and He deserves our praise. He deserves our devotion. He deserves our very lives. Just take one day out of seven to remember we, we have a mighty God, a great Creator. A Sabbath gives us time that is devoted, that is set aside, that is committed, that is consecrated to our relationship with God. Again, I go back to to contemporary evangelicalism and what is the tendency I think among most American evangelicals today is my relationship with God is really important to me as long as it's convenient. When I don't have something else going on, I make time for God. (laughs) But the minute that anything else comes up that's a little more attractive or any time that something might cost me, well, that time goes out the window. There's something to be said for when we make a commitment and we stick with it regardless of the cost when we devote time and set it aside to worship, to grow, to be refreshed in in Christ. Most of us know the importance of that as couples, if we're married. All the more important in our relationship with God. May I say along those lines, a Sabbath is a great opportunity to help us to pass on to the next generation our love and our passion for Christ when they see it and they experience it with us as we as we together drag them into our commitment and our priority and our obligation, not because it's a law, but because this is the most important thing in my life. I'll never forget a dad a few years ago who said, I can't believe my son is, is becoming an atheist. I don't know how he missed that... that Jesus is the most important thing in my life. And I'm like, well, I haven't seen you in church in three years. And you're not going anywhere. And I have a feeling your son has never seen you do anything in real life that has to do with your relationship with Christ. Sabbath is more than church. It's about priority. It's about passion. It's about setting, again, setting a priority in time to connect to reconnect with Christ, to delight in Him. A Sabbath is an opportunity to just catch a glimpse perhaps of what Eden was when man walked with God in the garden and what heaven will be when we see Him face to face and enjoy Him, delight in Him forever and ever. There's so much more I could say But we're really out of time. One thing I will say, Hebrews chapter 4, great passage, one you will have to struggle with. It's a difficult one to work your way through. But it says this twice, really. There is still a Sabbath rest. There's a Sabbath rest that remains for God's people. We, we enter into that Sabbath rest, it tells us, by believing by faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we're reconciled into a relationship with God. That's how we, we have that relationship of fellowship and nearness with Him. It's through Jesus. And we can experience that right now and all the morning. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. But what it's looking forward to is the ultimate fulfillment when we are face to face with Him forever. If you are here this morning, you've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with God, that's the one thing He wants you to know. God loves you so much. He sent His one and only Son to pay for your sin. So if you believe in Him, you can have forgiveness of sin and eternal life forever. Father, we've covered so much stuff. I hope everybody hasn't tuned out and gone brain dead I hope rather what it has done is opened our eyes to the marvel of what You did here on this seventh day. And that while we are not under law to do anything, it's not about being in church for so many hours on a day. We've got to be there for at least three hours and, and on Sunday night. And we've got to do this and do that and don't do that and don't do this. And What we have is opportunity. You desire relationship with us. Father, how we need to commit ourselves to breaking away from the noise, from the distractions, from the busyness of, this, of our life so that we have time and make time and spend time with You so we can get to know You, the great lover of our souls. Lord, I pray we would not ever be those who are legalists, become judgmental of others, I pray we would not be those who neglect this wonderful call and wonderful opportunity that You have provided for us through Jesus Christ. It's in His name we ask. Amen.